when I was home, living at home with my parents, I couldn't play music really loud. I mean, my parents would have never allowed it. So hearing the music really loud and having it feel completely encompassing, it was exhilarating. I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Author Susan Orlean joins us on The Sound of Success today. Her latest book on animals is a collection of essays she's written for The New Yorker, where she has been a staff writer since 1992, about all creatures great and small. In this collection of fascinating and gloriously detailed stories, we meet a bull mastiff named Biff Truesdale with a fragile ego and a love for eating bars of soap and a woman with a mysterious collection of tigers in her backyard in the suburbs of New Jersey. And we hear the ballad of Keiko, a killer whale with a droopy fin who played Willie in Free Willie. And we learn of her entry into keeping chickens. Susan is the author of seven books, including The Library Book, Rin Tin Tin, and The Orchid Thief, which was made into the Oscar-winning movie adaptation. And we're absolutely honored to have her as our guest today. Welcome, Susan. So happy to be with you. So nice to meet you. And we had a little conversation before we started rolling and, and found out that, that one time you lived in Dutchess County in upstate New York and used to listen to me on my first radio gig at uh, WDST in Woodstock. It's fabulous. I love the way the world works. I know. Well, I feel that we are bonded in eternity. And coincidentally, that's where I was living when I had my um, most robust menagerie of animals. And I wrote about that a lot in On Animals. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, well tell, tell us about the challenges that come with writing about subjects that cannot speak to you. It's a huge challenge. It's also very liberating, of course, because you can project onto animals a lot of thoughts and uh, motivations that you don't have to cross-check with them. But the challenge, of course, is to not anthropomorphize. And my stories were never meant to present animals as being the equivalent of humans, but rather this other life form that doesn't have the power of speech. And yet we forge alliances with, whether it's our dogs or whether it's the dairy cow that comes to be milked every morning, or Keiko, the killer whale who is performing in a movie. We interact with animals in so many different ways, and we do that all without this simple tool, namely communication. Mm. And yet we manage to do it. So a lot of these stories really are about navigating between life forms and the different strange versions of that that exists. Now, now your interest in animals goes back early for you. I mean, talk about all creatures great and small. I'm told the first book you wrote was when you were five called Herbert the Nearsighted Pigeon. Right. So this was a, in an edition of one. I drew handwritten, <laughs> uh, hand-drawn illustrations, and it was a story about pigeon who was very sad because he felt his friends were shunning him and he realized after going to get his eyes examined that he needed glasses and 
Lo and behold, he discovers he's been shunning his friends because he didn't recognize them without his glasses on. So it's, <laughs> I think I wrote it at a time when I was first falling in love with reading and falling in love with animals and populated the entire book with animals. There are no humans in the book. Let me ask you this. Are you like me in so much as if you come across people who don't like animals or don't like pets, that you're sort of a little, I'm not too sure about you. I'm puzzled by it. I know there are people who are neutral and they just, they don't have an urge to have a pet, but they don't actively dislike them. Take it or leave it, yeah. Yeah, um, but even that I find a little surprising. But people who really don't like animals, I'm puzzled by it. Yeah. My my mom has a has a great story of when she was dating as a single older person, not old but older, like middle aged, and she had a, a guy who came around, and the first thing he did was kick the cat off the couch, and she was like, "It was the end of that date." Well, I actually wrote about <laughs> this a little bit because when I got divorced and first started dating, it dawned on me that I might meet someone who didn't like animals. And I thought, wow, I wonder if that's a deal breaker for me. You know, I didn't have a laundry list of what this person needed. Mm. But when I thought about it, I thought, wow, that would be strange for me. I couldn't imagine putting a household together with someone who actively didn't like animals. And I think more than anything, it was the idea that we wouldn't enjoy this thing together. There's a lot of pleasure in having a pet with someone else. The way you do with children, you sort of marvel at their oddities and laugh at the way they behave and you get a lot of mutual pleasure out of them. And I, could, I couldn't even quite imagine being with someone who said, look, I don't like animals, but if you want one, go ahead. Mm. and being completely neutral, mm. but just not wanting anything to do with the animal. I think it would, it would cause me to feel somewhat alienated, I think. I'm right there with you. So let me ask you, as you were compiling this book, did you learn anything about animals perhaps that you hadn't considered when you first started writing these pieces? It was very interesting to see them together. And, and, you know, that's part of what makes a collection such an interesting project, because you take these pieces that ran 10 years apart, five years apart, 20 years apart, and see them together and see what themes are repeated, what tone you bring to them that is consistent over all of these years. And certainly I think what I saw was my fascination, particularly with the animals that are neither pets nor wildlife. These animals that we, we rely on, you know, livestock, donkeys, mule, mm -hmm. animals that we don't bring into our home as a family member, the way we do with a dog or a cat, but animals that we do have some connection to, and they rely on us as well. They, they are not wild. If you took a 
chicken coop and opened it up and let the chickens run away, they wouldn't run away. <laughs> they don't want to be wild. They aren't wild. Right. Yeah. But nor are they pets. And there is a huge universe of animals that we interact with in that way. And those stories to me were especially interesting. When you're writing, clearly research is, is a big part of what you have to do because you want to be accurate, obviously, with the information that you have. How much time is spent doing that? I mean, tell us a little bit about the, the, the research that you do. Well, I believe strongly in the idea that the art is in the facts and to make a piece really sing and really jump off of the page. It's all about finding the most interesting information you can. So there's a huge front end investment of time that in a way, the more time you spend researching and reporting, the more the piece kind of writes itself because you've got such incredible information. I can't quantify exactly because it depends so much on how long a piece I'm writing. But when I wrote the library book, for instance, I reported for four years and then it took me about a year and a half to write the book. So that proportion is probably pretty consistent, you know, in lesser and greater degrees, depending on how long a piece I'm writing. So four years, that's a chunk of time of anybody's life. I mean, I presume you're doing other things at the same time. Not that many. It's exclusively um, I, dedicated I, to the project. Yeah, I yeah. try not to. I don't like to be working on more than one thing at a time. And certainly I did some other work while I was reporting the book. But to really do a good job, I think you have to immerse yourself and really be thinking morning, noon and night about the subject. I mean, that's how I work the best. And you begin making connections in your head that only come about because you're really absorbed in the subject. Do you set office hours? I do. I'm, and when I'm writing, I set a word count quota. I try to write a thousand words a day. And if I get that done in two hours, I'm free. Although Got I it. never get that done in two hours. So that's purely hypothetical. Sure. But I give myself rather than hours. I set a word count. If it's, if I'm in the research time of a project, I try to keep reasonable hours from say 10 to four. You know, there's a point where you lose momentum. Your brain just runs dry. So sure. eight hours is kind of hard to spend trying to think of ways to report a subject, but you do really need to put in the time and it put in the elbow grease, digging around and finding good information. I just wrote this obituary about Betty White and I only had a day and a half to research it. So I had to go into hyperspeed to try to find some information about her that wasn't in every other obituary. How do you do that? Dig, 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 dig. Go to on when the you web? Google when you Google something on yeah. the web, you go not to the first Google page or the second, but to the ninety-nine and find the thing that came up on Google 
99 pages back. Yeah, nobody and, else has bothered to go that far. Right. And I think that's really true. And, you know, I discovered that Betty White and her husband were very close friends with John Steinbeck. Well, to me, that was, that did it. That made my story. Got it. Because it was so unlikely. It was so remarkable. And it also told you a lot about Betty White, that even though she played a sort of an airhead a lot of the time, she was not. She was very smart and very Thoughtful. articulate yeah. and literate. And John Steinbeck wouldn't have suffered a fool, I'm sure. So it was, um, that was probably on page 99 of the Google search. <laughs> Fabulous. We're going to talk a little bit about music, but we've got one more question here. And that is, what are you working on now? I'm working on several things. First of all, I've launched a column in the New Yorker that is obituaries, which is a very interesting undertaking. Yeah, pray to expand on that. I've always interested in the great equalizers in human civilization. What are the things that sort of level the playing field that we all experience in one way or another? Mm -hmm. Death is obviously the, Death is the big one, yeah. But what I liked was the opportunity to write expanded obituaries about people who aren't in the spotlight. You know, hmm. even Sanghan dies, obviously there are going to be... Everyone's got it. Yeah. yeah, and it reams and reams of writing. Can you give us an example of, of somebody? Uh, yes, I did an obituary of uh, a woman who lived actually in the San Fernando Valley, who had, she was Japanese. She had been born in Tokyo and became a master of making the kind of dolls that are in Japan. Children don't play with these dolls. They're thought of as having souls and, mm -hmm. you know, have, having a spiritual meaning, really. And she was a master doll maker. So I wrote a piece about her. I wrote about a tennis pro who then had a terrible car accident and, and was barely able to walk again, but he continued coaching tennis. And uh, yeah, he was a really interesting guy. So, uh, so you're just seeking out really interesting stories of people yeah. who've lived lives and passed on without anybody really knowing about them exactly. other than their family Exactly. Yeah. I mean, lives that when you examine them a little more closely are full of incredible detail and richness, but they weren't famous people. They weren't. I, I did do Benny White last week, but generally speaking, I'm not going to do anyone well-known. I'd rather sure. look for people who somehow went under the radar. Uh, let's turn to music. What's your first musical memory? You know, I grew up in a house full of music. My parents had classical music and opera playing all of the time. So Where did you grow up? I, I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland. Mm -hmm. My parents were both very avid music listeners. But my first memory of, of something that stuck in my head that I really connected with was the Beatles and hearing I Want to Hold Your Hand when I was a little girl mm -hmm. and feeling like this was something 
for me only, mm -hmm. not for my parents, but for me. And it was very exciting. I, I have a feeling that we have a, a similar trajectory here because that's my exact first thing as well was seeing the, the adults being excited about Twist and Shout and all these early Beatles songs and being like, this looks fun. This looks exciting. Yeah. I mean, and I was very lucky because I grew up somewhere that had a very progressive radio station, WMMS, and they played whole sides of albums. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I got a good old great, days of radio. Yeah. yeah. I got a great musical education, but I remember hearing the Beatles, it was probably on AM radio for all I know. And my sister and I would listen to the radio at night. And when we heard that, it was electrifying. The last time I, I listened to a whole album side on, on the radio was actually when I was in Woodstock and I would fill in on the night shift in the middle of the night. And at three o'clock in the morning, you'd throw an album on and just head out down to, you know, the local Cumberland Farms, get some coffee, get a snack and, you know, hope that the CD or the, the album didn't, didn't skip as you were out of the station for a minute. What was the first music you bought with your own money? I actually remember this explicitly. I'm so pleased. Records were very inexpensive because I'm a hundred million years old. <laughs> and I bought two albums for the very first expenditure of my own money. And one was Tea from the Tillerman, Cat Stevens. Cat Stevens yeah. And the other was American Beauty, The Grateful Dead. And they were, I bought them at Woolworths, which actually had a red, record section and right. walking distance from my house. So I walked down there, bought these two albums, and they were very precious to me. And luckily, I have to say, I still love them. Do you remember why those artists, maybe not necessarily the records, but those two artists? I'm not sure. I mean, Cat Stevens was on the radio a lot. And I always have responded really strongly to Melody. And I think he's a master Absolutely. Melody yeah. writer. He's just a great songwriter. And I think there was something very wistful and romantic in his voice that really appealed to little girls. Like Absolutely. Me. Are you kidding? Yes. And the Grateful Dead. I mean, that seems like an odd pairing. But, it does. Yeah. Um, to me, the Grateful Dead were similarly great songwriters. And there was certainly American Beauty and Working Man's Dead that were not unlike T for the Tillerman. I mean, they were folky, very melodic, folky albums. It's just that the Grateful Dead had that sort of psychedelic quality to it. But what always appealed to me about the Grateful Dead was the the part of their music that was really roots-based, that was really about American vernacular music, folk and country music. And I just responded really strongly to those melodies, those kind of wistful melodies. Did you become a deadhead, by the way? Are you a deadhead? I was a huge dead fan. And I saw the dead live many, 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 many times, but I am not a dentist. <laughs> I mean, there is a distinct lifestyle. I'm just, wondering, I'm just wondering what the difference is when you say I'm a fan and I saw them many times, but I'm not a deadhead. Well, I think part of the distinction is, do you self-identify as a deadhead? And Fair enough. I, I felt, you know, 
there really were people who traveled with the dead practically, and they their whole life was about going from concert to concert. Right. And I had a little lore going on in my life, but I was <laughs> I was very much a fan. Listen, you had that. other stuff to do. I get yeah, it. I did yeah. like go to high school and yeah. other great ambitions, like graduate from college and that sort of thing. You're talking about dead and them being on the road endlessly, and they still are. Well, you know, the, the guys who are left, I guess. But that brings us to our next question, which is about live performance. What was the first concert you went to? I think the first concert I ever went to was the Allman Brothers, you know, really long ago. I must have been in maybe junior high or high school. And I'm trying to remember because I there were a bunch of concerts that I once I started, I started going to a lot of concerts, so I, I wasn't a hundred percent sure I remember them exactly in chronological order, but I think it was an Allman Brothers concert. Do you remember how it felt being at live music events for the first time? Those early concerts, whichever, whoever it might've been, do you remember that feeling of oh, going yeah. into a concert hall for the yes. first time and seeing, you know, half a dozen people up on stage? Oh, I remember it so vividly. I, I mean, it was, first of all, being when you're young and for the first time you're in an audience of all young people and people doing things that felt rebellious, like smoking mm -hmm. cigarettes and smoking joints. And I mean, considering that I was in junior high or high school and these other kids, a lot of them were more college age. You know, it was very exhilarating, but hearing yeah, yeah. music live. When, when you're that age, I think as well, you know, the show is the show as well, isn't it? It's not just yeah. the people on stage. It's everything getting in, so, yeah. lining up, seeing who else is around. You know, I, when I was home, living at home with my parents, I couldn't play music really loud. I mean, my parents would have never allowed it. So hearing the music really loud and having it feel completely encompassing. It was exhilarating yeah. and hearing the music coming through your body. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, I went on my, my first real job as a writer was being a music critic. And so I went to many, many, many concerts and there got, came to a point where the loudness was too much for me. It went from being exhilarating to being painful because as a music critic, you were seated up front and really close to the speaker and having your head blown apart. But just the loudness and the music sort of rumbling through your body was really different from listening to a record at home. Especially if you had to have the volume turned down as, as I yeah. did in my, in my house as well. What, what do you listen to when you want to dance? I have a mixtape, a playlist on Spotify that mm -hmm. I, I mean, from the time I started listening to music, I always put together dance tapes and it, it, it's a range of things from old music to contemporary stuff, you know, the XX, Lil Nas X. The staple singers, it spans many generations. It's just the music that has this an old, old disco, which I love. And, and all of a sudden is cool. 
Yeah. I mean, if I really had to pick one album, it would be the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever. I would just say, if you want a good dance album, that's a good bet. Throw just, that on. Yeah. What do you listen to if you're feeling sad? I have a short playlist of a few songs. One called Another Story by The Head and the Heart, Eternal Flame by The Bangles, and Jack Straw by The Grateful Dead. They're sort of my cry if you want to playlist. You're on Spotify, and I'm presuming that you find new music on Spotify as well. Do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with us? Yeah, I've recently fallen in love with a band called Bonnie Light Horseman. And I know them. Mm. They are quite amazing. Oh, they're great. They're great. And it it's sort of old folk you know i love first aid kid i love the head and the heart i love of monsters and men so you know those are a lot of the band i mean i my spotify end of the year wrap-up showed that the thing i played the most was first aid kit so well, i'm looking at bonnie light horseman now and I'm, I'm recognizing some of these uh some of these musicians who are in other bands um, yeah it's uh, sort of a super group. Uh, yeah, like guys from The National, The Shins. Uh, I'm going to have to check that out. Thank you for that. They're amazing. And the woman who does some of the vocals has an extraordinary voice. And it's an interplay of her voice and the men in the band. And um, it just, they're great. They're really, really, really great. Yeah, the vocalist is Anise Mitchell. I know some of her solo work. So that's fabulous. Thank you for right. that. Yeah, they're great. Do you have a band or an artist that you love, but you feel like they never quite got the break that they deserved? Well, I am a huge fan, huge, huge, huge fan, Nico Case. Mm. And I wouldn't say she's never gotten the break, but... Sure, she's sort of been bubbling with that indie cred for a long time. Yeah, there are songs that I feel should be big hits, at least within the universe of that sort of indie music. I yeah. I don't expect her to be on the Billboard 100, but I feel like she's underappreciated and yet keeps making fabulous music that isn't hard to like. I mean, if you listen to her music, she's it's very accessible. It's wonderful music. And I'm puzzled that she never quite broke out the way I think she should. Do you have a guilty pleasure? And I'm realizing the more of these uh, episodes that, that we do, that obviously guilty pleasures are things that people don't share. So when I ask you, do you have a guilty pleasure? Is it something, an artist, a song perhaps that you wouldn't ordinarily tell people about that you're going to share with us right now? <laughs> yeah, well, I think my guiltiest pleasure is Neil Diamond. And I will go to the mat and argue that I shouldn't feel guilty about it because you I shouldn't. think, you know, legitimately a a great songwriter. What a songwriter. What a voice. Yeah. I mean, yeah. He's, it's just that he's so square. And I think that when I was a kid, he was way too square. Well, your parents liked him, right? So you can't yeah. like that. 
Yeah. And he is square. I mean, yeah. he's sort of out of it, the Tin Pan Alley tradition and the Brill Building more than in rock and roll. But he's a fantastic songwriter. And so I love I love his music. No, I'm a fan. I've never actually met him. He's somebody who I would have loved to have uh, interviewed in the past. I'm not too sure he's doing that much stuff anymore. But yeah, that's a great one. Neil Diamond. Well, look, we've been talking for about half an hour and we're just about done. I can't believe how quickly it's gone. And I always like to finish these conversations by asking our subject, how are you feeling right now? Right now, I think, well, first of all, I'm very happy because it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, likewise. Thank you. And finally meet you after hearing your voice for so long. I think like everybody, I'm in a state of suspended animation. I mean, I'm knock on wood. My life is good. I'm healthy. My family is healthy. But I think we're all waiting for the other shoe to drop. And that makes this feel like a very strange moment in all of our lives. How many many shoes are there, though? I mean, but they just They've been dropping dropping. for two years. Like a centipede, yeah. (laughs) It's been so much fun talking to you, Susan. Thank you. Really appreciate you joining us. My pleasure entirely. Thanks, Nick. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Clay. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com. Music